Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, remember to subscribe wherever you're listening. Come find us on Facebook and on Instagram and come find me on LinkedIn. I want to connect with you. Next month, we're going to be launching our newsletter. Now, it's going to be designed to help us all get 1% better every day. It's going to have tips and all the great things that we've learned from a lot of our guests, as well as upcoming events of how you can get to know some of the C-suite leaders, the command leaders, the people that we talk to, the authors. We want to make sure that everyone is getting connected and finding the most value out of the podcast, out of the DC Local Leaders platform. So check out dclocalleaders.com where you can sign up for the newsletter. Now, there'll be a couple questions for you to answer, and that's on purpose so that we can get you tailored content. If you're a C-suite leader, if you're a command leader, if you're mid-career, if you just want to make a change and shift your mindset, it has nothing to do with your job. We want to make sure that we get you the best version of the newsletter so that it makes the most sense for you, creating value. So please go ahead and sign up. If there's any questions about it, come find me on LinkedIn. Connect with me. Ask me whatever you want. Suggest a guest. Any kind of information you want us to delve into that'll be helpful to you, that'll create value for you, let us know so that we can bring you exactly what you need to get 1% better every day. Today's episode is with Graham Plaster, a national security executive, AI startup mentor, entrepreneur, angel investor, and author. He's known for his work in the book, In the Shadows of Greatness. Tom Brokaw called it a must read for all Americans. He's the founder and director of business development for the intelligence community, moderating a next-gen trade association of over 100,000 national security professionals online. Links to sign up for the intelligence community is right below the show. We have a great conversation. Graham is one of these people, if you're a startup AI company and your desire is to work with the federal government on intelligence and national security, you must reach out to him. His contact information is below. He is the person you want to learn from. And today we just talk a little bit about his experience with the United States Navy, his experience about just being a person and going through the growing pains of just living everyday life. We talk about his travels and what that's meant to him growing up with his father being also in the military and the impression that that's had on him. We even talk about Hamlet. He's well connected and just one of the people that you just need to get to know. He's very open. You can find him on LinkedIn. We'll have links below the show. You can find him on the intelligence community. He has a sub stack where it's there's both a free and a paid version. We'll have links for that, too. He's just a huge resource for information, and I don't want anyone to miss the opportunity to get to know him. So let's get into the episode. Well, welcome to the DC Local Leaders Podcast, Graham. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. So you are the founder of Intelligence Community, Inc. 
You also consult for small businesses that are looking to get into the government space, specifically within intelligence. You are former military. You served in the United States Navy. And I want to talk to you about your experience with the Navy, what that's done for your life personally and professionally. And I want to hear a little bit more about Intelligence Community, Inc., and some of those things about you as a leader and as an individual that helps shape your mindset. So it's really good to have you here. Great. Looking forward to it, Phil. So what is Intelligence Community, Inc.? The Intelligence Community, Inc. is a veteran-owned small business that provides a social network for people interested in national security writ large. So we are wide open for people coming from business intelligence or private security, government contracting, academia, people that are in government or in the military. Generally speaking, we are a social network of people kind of at the periphery of the U.S. intelligence community. So we like to provide support services, either holding events online or in person, or helping people to crowdsource open source intelligence for different functions. But also over the years, we've become a pipeline for discovering emerging technology for national security. And that's something that I've grown into over the last several years is, is mentoring up and coming uh, technology companies that want to provide services or products for the U.S. intelligence. How do you how do you get into that? Were you always in the intelligence community, like through your Navy? And, I was and never formally in the intelligence community. I served for eleven years active duty in the Navy after I graduated from the Naval Academy, and then as I was getting ready to get out in 2013, I started the company partly as a result of some studies I'd done during my master's degree about the power of social networks. And so I saw there was a real need to establish some informal groups in national security that would help people connect with each other. And reflecting on the 9-11 Commission report, I saw that there were people that wanted to be connected to each other that didn't have a good way to do that. Yeah. And traditionally, there were trade associations that did some of that. But as social networks came online, especially professional ones like LinkedIn, it, it created a new avenue for connecting with it. What did you find about those social networks when you were doing your, your master's? Like, what was it about it that stuck out to you the most? I was specifically focused on the rise of blogs in Iran. So from 2000 on, and that was really the genesis for the what was happening with microblogging, which is Twitter during the green movement. And so I was interested in how or if social networks could be useful for as a tool during a revolution. So the question really at the time was 2009, 2010, can you tweet a revolution? And there was debate on that issue. If you look at Iran as a use case, there, there was no doubt that Twitter was influential. But given the fact that authoritarian regimes have can have a lot of control over the digital space in their countries. And eventually they did have a lot of control. Some people would weigh in and say, no, you can't tweet a revolution. You have to have other modes of communication that are outside of governmental control. But what we did see during the green movement was a lot of participation outside of Iran in helping people that were on the ground in Iran, either coming from the diaspora or coming from other governments or uh, nonprofits to try to help people that we're trying to buck the system and, and bring about democratic reforms. And so that's that's what I was focused on at the time. But it gave rise to broader ideas about social networks and how they could be leveraged for the equivalent of pamphleteering, basically writing ideas and spreading ideas rapidly in order to bring about positive change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you found and so when you when you think about that, the 
social media networks are open and anyone can write anything and anyone can read anything. Did you find that like governments would limit some of those things or because the government that's in power that is potentially being overthrown, like in a, in a use case like that would also have the power to limit what information is disseminated, right? Yeah. And I won't get too technical on this in this conversation, but in any country where there's heavy censorship online, there's a risk that that particular digital platform will not be an effective tool to help people. So that's the question, really. If you look at organizations like Access Now, which are trying to figure out ways to get more internet freedom to places around the world where there's a lot of heavy censorship, then you can say, okay, well, if people could get access to more internet, then would that help democratize the country or promote ideals of freedom? And I, I think it would to to a great extent. I mean, obviously, there's a very toxic internet culture too to watch out for. So as we yeah. increase internet access to all ages to, for all purposes, we can see patterns in social networks that are negative. And I think that's come into scrutiny in the last couple of years. But to a great extent, more open access to the internet and and to each other through social networks, I think uh, can lead to a lot of uh, cultural change. How long were you in the military for in the Navy total? So I, I went to the Naval Academy from 98 to 2002, and I was in the first class to graduate after 9-11. Okay. So 2002, I was commissioned and served for a few years as what's called a surface warfare officer. So I was on uh, a frigate called the Reuben James out of Hawaii, which people might remember the, the name Reuben James from Hunt for Red October was in okay. the movie. And that's that's the ship up there on the wall. Oh, wow. We're looking at a picture of the actual ship on the wall of his office here. Yeah. And so I did that for a few years. And then I was an assistant operations officer for a destroyer squadron in San Diego, which oversaw the build out of a bunch of destroyer ships. And then went from there to serve uh, as the assistant dean of students at the Naval War College for three years. 2007 to 2010. And then I was selected for a special program in the Navy called the Foreign Area Officer Program, which is kind of uh, equivalent in some ways to the State Department's Foreign Service. So it has a, it's a diplomatic type of role. So they sent me to Monterey to learn. And then I came to Washington, D.C. for three years and served under the Army at the Pentagon doing United Nations peacekeeping op- operations. So I traveled all around the Middle East Iraq, several times, Israel, Jordan, Kenya, Egypt. I was in Egypt just three months before the Arab Spring, so that was interesting. And and then I got out of the Navy in 2013 and transitioned to the, kind of the defense contracting world and did policy work at the Pentagon while I also did entrepreneurial work on the side through the Intelligence Community, Inc. And that's there, during that time, a lot of change happened for me, and I started to get more and more into mentoring small businesses that are interested in emerging tech for national security. What are some of the people that you were able to help with your your coaching and your mentorship? Sure. I'll talk about some themes. So obviously, I started out with a general theme of my own company of being a, a social network. So the theme was at the time when I started, the idea was crowdsourcing. So in the intelligence world, and as I mentioned, I was never actually an intelligence officer, but there's a there's a theme in intelligence of open source intelligence, which is collecting um, information from sources that can be gotten anywhere and then aggregating, curating it, organizing it so it becomes useful and it becomes actionable. So crowdsourcing is one method to try to get some sort of actionable intelligence. So since I had put together this large social network, which is much larger than 
just the formal U.S. intelligence community. We reach all around the world through LinkedIn and, and Twitter and Facebook. And so so that was one of the early themes is how to crowdsource open source intelligence. So we pulled together volunteers and we wrote books and we uh, held events to, to network and help each other and advise on different things. And at one point, we actually did a demonstration for one of the intelligence community agencies on how to crowdsource intelligence around a platform that, that they built. And then another theme that emerged was, has of course been artificial intelligence. It's a, it's a hot topic right now. And it's something that we are, we care about as we try to figure out how to rapidly organize information when we're, we're drowning in information. So in the information age, the, the most important thing is to be able to find not just a needle in a haystack, but maybe a needle in a pile of needles. And so it's a more a complex problem that AI can really bring a lot of uh, power to bear on that yeah. problem. How have you found the difficulty in creating AI solutions centered around the intelligence world and being able to secure it and protect it once you create something and then monitor it because it's still subject to flaws? You know, I've consulted more generally to a number of AI companies in national security, but I think the challenge there is that the popular conception of AI, which is what Skynet and uh, Terminator 2, yeah. general AI or strong AI, the concept of being self-aware, that's that's almost problematic because really what we need is a lot of narrow AI that can do specific functions really fast. And so as far as the applicability of a lot of narrow AIs working together, on complex tasks, but working in coordinate. I think we're moving ahead in, in great ways through the Joint AI Center at the Pentagon and, and other, other initiatives within government. But there's constantly an explainability problem, which is once you build a, a great product, you still have to sell it to a lot of people that might not understand it that well. So and as, as AI gets more complex, that problem only gets more difficult. And if you're selling into government, the ability to explain how it works and why we need it is is hard. And Peter Thiel talks about this in Zero to One. There's always a chasm between the engineering team, I don't care if it's software or hardware, and the sales team. The sales team is you know, responsible to communicate, this is why you need this, this iPhone in your, in your pocket. And then the engineering team, of course, is hopefully listening to that whole DevOps cycle saying, okay, the user needs this, 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 let's modify it until we get it to the exact fit, the product market fit. And, and when you're working with government, that conversation can just get wrapped around the axle. There's just so many people in it. It's so bureaucratic, so long, which has given rise to a lot of government contracting methodologies in recent years to try to speed that up and make it make it more mm. agile. And so with Intelligence Community Inc., do you guys provide a conduit to be able to speed that up and help uh, startup ventures and small businesses that want to create a product that will help solve the problems for the government? Do you kind of assist in those conversations? We do. We've hosted a lot of events that have focused in on what we call rapid acquisition, contract vehicles, different things ranging from uh, sole source 8A contracts to other transaction authorities to looking at uh, the SIBR process, small business innovation research pipeline. And, and all these things are just different kinds of tools. So the more people know about all of them, the better. But from the government side, what we're trying to do is help different people in government that care about innovation, meet innovators. So we're almost still more interested in the, the social aspect, just connecting good people together. So I'd like to talk a little bit about like the individuals. So a lot of what we talk about is mindset, 
mindset, personal development, leadership development, all those things, because you came out of the military and immediately had a entrepreneurial spirit, it sounds like, with the Intelligence Community Inc., but not just that, you're fostering small business or startup companies or fostering these conversations between the business community and the folks in the intelligence community that want to innovate. Mm-hmm. I want to get into where that came from, and I'd really like to hear more about what you learned in the Navy. Like, do you think your Navy experience has caused you to be a little bit more entrepreneurial or more resilient to risk? I mean, it's two separate questions, but I was a person, I was a child who loved to play with Legos. And I loved to play with Legos without directions. If I got a Lego kit that had instructions, I would want to throw them away immediately and create my own thing. And so I was creative, but I also liked enough structure to work with the blocks. And so I reflect back on that frequently because I think about different personality types, especially entrepreneurial uh, personality types. And I think about if they were the type to get a Lego kit and want to build the thing in the directions, that sounds a little bit more like an engineer. And if they were the person to get the Legos and immediately incorporate them with some Lincoln Logs and some stuffed animals, maybe they're more on the art artistic side. So there's like some sort of uh, a middle road where you like you, you realize that you want to create something new, but you realize that the constraints are there. And so in there, are, of course, there's nothing wrong with being anywhere on that spectrum. But I saw in myself the desire to be very creative. And yet I, I knew that I needed some hard skills. And so part of the reason why I went to the Naval Academy was to balance out my creative side. And I went there and served in the Navy. And honestly, the entire time I was feeling very strong entrepreneurial urges. And I was, I got my real estate license when, when I was in San Diego. I got I was advising my father's company on, on a product line they could launch and just constantly looking for other things to do. And not that the Navy wasn't keeping me busy enough, but I just had a creative drive. And when I got out, it's like, okay, finally I get to flex that muscle. So I would say that if anything, being in the Navy obviously taught me certain disciplines that are very useful, like getting handing me the blocks to build with. Yeah. But the drive was there before that. And if anything, the drive is unique from other people in the military because a lot of people in the military are more like, hey, you give me the instructions, I'll build the thing. No, they're good at following protocols and, and procedures. And that's great. That's what we need. And then there are very entrepreneurial people in the military adapt and overcome kind of personalities. Yeah. What are some of those building blocks that they taught you to be able to use now that you had that spirit? Well, they're, they're very stereotypical, but the, the attention to detail, the attention to time, the uh, reverse engineering of a process in order to uh, get to an end goal. If you tell me, okay, we're going to have to take that hill. I say, okay, let's start with that as the goal. and Let's work backwards and figure out how we're going to do it. Um, breaking it down into steps. So the military is very big into planning which is great. If you're a creative, if you're an entrepreneur and you are just focused on head in the clouds, big ideas, it's going to be hard to reach those ideas. So if you get, if you get the, the, the blocks uh, on how to set a goal and then reverse engineer it to what I need to do today, mm-hmm. that's a great skill set for an entrepreneur. And you think these are, these are teachable things because you, you learned it there. That's teachable things. I think the harder thing is, is the entrepreneurial drive. Like I think uh, you can learn, you can learn the, the, um, 
the operational skills of, of breaking things down and achieving them. But if you're not an imaginative person, you might not necessarily be able to, on your own at least, envision a goal, the goal. And that takes leadership and that takes imagination. And it sounds like you had those things innately in there. Well, I hope so. Well, you know, so. so are you, is there any other person in your family that's in the military? My father, after I got into the Naval Academy, he was he was already 40 and he already served as a physician for many years as an ER doctor. And he applied to get into the Navy as a reservist. And because he was specialized, they brought him in with an age waiver and he joined and then he deployed to Iraq twice with the Marines running a shock trauma platoons. So we were actually both deployed at the same time. And they brought him into the Navy actually at a higher rank than I was when I graduated from the Naval Academy. So even though he came in after me, I still had to salute him. But do you think that your joining the Navy influenced him or was it the other way? I'm trying to figure out like why the Navy, if you had these things, you probably would have had these ideas at that age anyway. Why the Navy and not some other path? Well, both my grandfather served in World War II. And um, I grew up in Delaware, but we would take family trips to um, Annapolis and on, on a weekend here or there. And so I, I was aware of the Naval Academy in junior high school. And so I had the strong patriotic desire to serve coming through my family. Although my father hadn't served during um, Vietnam because his number got passed over, he also had thought about joining the, the the Navy when he was young. And, and we, so we would go sailing as a family. We'd sail around Annapolis. We saw the Naval Academy and I just, I just fixated on that in junior high. I said, that's where I'm going to go. And so he likes to say that I inspired him to join, but I think that I basically just kind of pushed him over the edge. I think he was already wanting to do that. And the fact that I made the decision to go, he, he jumped yeah. in the water too. Have you ever read Jocko Willick's uh, Extreme Ownership? I, I've read some of it, and I do have a copy. Yeah. I do respect Jocko quite a bit. He's a big discipline equals freedom kind of guy mm-hmm. and a big morning routine kind of guy. Do you have a morning routine, or did you learn one in the military that you still practice? Actually, I, I would say that having a morning routine is something that I need right now. I am, I'm far enough over on the entrepreneurial spectrum where... Every day is different, and every and I basically am always creating every day new. But I, it's just like when I played with Legos creatively, and then I went to the Naval Academy, and I learned certain disciplines. I feel like getting a better morning routine right now would be great for my own personal development. So it's yeah. something I'm studying right now. Did you did you have one when you were in the military? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we yeah. all had. So that was all about getting up early, reading the newspaper, doing some mindfulness meditation type type of time, and. For me, that's my my personal faith and in, in getting into the Bible and praying, and then also as we as we get about the day, there was always, of course, built in time for physical exercise. So the the idea of you can't manage stress uh, well without exercise. It's it's the best possible way. Obviously, eating well, but getting out and getting in nature is important for that. Um, yeah, I mean, and that and there's a lot of spiritual teachers that will tell you that a lot of mindfulness teachers that will tell you that because the body and, and, and the mind are made of the same things. If you think it's all made of cells and if we can hold tension in our mind, we can hold it in our body. And sometimes physiology and psychology are connected. I'm a big Tony Robbins guy and that's his, that's his whole thing. Sure. And, and it seems to work. Do you journal at all? Do you have a, a time where you put down goals or anything that you might, is there any sort of written process that you follow? It's not a process, but it is an impulse. I've, I've been a writer. I was an English major, so I've, I've always written poems, songs, stories. I've got 
20 different books kind of started on my hard drive. And and then I used to do a lot of writing, believe it or not, on my calculator at the Naval Academy. You uh, can write on a calculator? We had these big kind of graphing calculators that had a full keyboard on them. And so I'd be taking calculus and then I'd have a break and I'd have an idea for something and I would switch over to a file and be banging away at writing something. What about I am statements? Do you, so I, I do, and they can be called affirmations or whatever, but I do this practice of like I am statements because it's been suggested that I am is two of the most powerful words in the English language, that whatever you insert after that, what we think is what we become. So I am, and then insert whatever it is that you want to become or that you think you are, will help solidify a thought, those synapses, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, that sort of thing. So I am efficient. I am successful. Like I am what I, I use it in a way that anything that I'm trying to improve upon in my life, like I am punctual, I am whatever, I'm fit, you know. I am maintaining a healthy diet, like whatever. I start to just repeat these things to myself so that when the fried chicken sandwich comes along, I'm like, no, I'm, I am maintaining a healthy diet. I'm maintaining physical fitness. So I am going to go do this workout for the day, even though I don't feel like it. I mean, it's a profound question. It's something I've thought about quite a bit because I, my master's was actually in humanities and I I wrote a poem called I Am, actually, at that oh, wow. time. It was a partly a reflection on Hamlet's to be or not to be speech, which is a conjugation of the word, the term, of the verb to be, which is I am is, is one of those conjugations. And so the fundamental question before you add anything after the words I am something is just that I am. I'm here. And so starting with a thankfulness for being alive and a thankfulness for the existence that I have is fundamental for even making any decisions after that of what I want to become with that. And I think that Hamlet was meditating on that. Is it good to be or not to be? That's the question. And But if I were to take the next step and say, what do I want to be? I love the idea of being an entrepreneur. And I love the idea of working with other entrepreneurs because these, these are the, the men and women who create. They're the ones who build. And it's exciting to me to do that. Well, you mentioned something else. Gratitude. Sounds like you, you practice gratitude in your daily routine somewhere along the line. Have you, did you pick that up as a formal practice or did you? That's, that's something that comes from my faith. But I, I would say that it's also a stress management technique. So I would say that as, as life gets hard and it always does for everybody at some point, uh, coming back to, to what you're thankful for is the most positive thing that you can do for yourself and for the people around you. What What's one of those tough moments? Uh, I call it the jumping off point. It's a, it's a point in time where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, but you're unsure of what to do next. Or it could be a moment of pain that at that time it was very painful, but now you look back and you're very grateful that it happened. Yeah, I think Seth Godin calls it the dip. So in 2005-ish, we were in San Diego and we had just sold um, our condo from Hawaii and we made a little bit of money. The housing market was rising and we uh, plugged that our, our money as uh, a young couple into a house in San Diego and uh, the market tanked right after that. And so we lost everything that we'd earned on our first place. Plus we went into two major debt. Mm. And at the same time, my wife's younger brother, Jesse, was dying from leukemia and he passed away during that. And so those those kind of stressors on our family while we were at that time, we had three kids and another one on the way. And we moved on to Newport, Rhode Island. All of those stressors were on us as we were considering whether to get out of the Navy or to stay in. 
And so you were still in the Navy at this time. That's when I was the assistant dean of students at Naval War College. So I was there and we were trying to figure out where to pivot to next. And so losing that, losing a close family member and then having four children were the pressures on us at the time. And I look back on it and it was it was a hard time. And there were other hard times that came before and after that. But they were the forcing functions that caused me to end up, you know, going into the diplomatic field of the foreign area officer community and then brought me back to the D.C. area to, to be at the Pentagon and, and brought me to where I am now. So I would say that for me, looking back, if things weren't, hadn't been quite so hard, I might have actually gotten out of the military at that time because being in the military actually provided enough benefits for my family that I had enough security that I could just keep going. So it was hard, but it, it brought me to where I am now and I'm thankful for where I am now. You're grateful and you're impacting a lot of people, it sounds like, not just with the Intelligence Community Inc., but also with your your mentorship of other other companies and other people. And Do you have a mentor yourself right now? Yeah, I have several mentors. I w- I'd point to one in particular right now. His name is Admiral Paul Becker. He teaches leadership at uh, the Naval Academy right now. And he served in the U.S. intelligence community at very senior levels and just is an inspiration because he's he's survived cancer several times and always has incredible optimism despite every challenge. So when I talk to a lot of leaders and I talk to a lot of people that are in an entrepreneurial position Each one has some sort of memory that sticks out to them from their childhood that solidified a thought or an action or something that they're doing that they carry with them as a motivator or something that either they don't want to be or that they want to make sure they continue to do. Can you think back from your childhood as the most impactful memory that shapes who you are as an individual today, even if it's a belief that you have or that you don't want to have? I mean, there's a lot. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll just say that my parents achieved a lot together professionally, and they did it coming uh, from a background where they didn't have very much. My father went to college on a basketball scholarship and then went to med school and then went through law school and then started a successful business and, and then joined the military after after I went to Naval Academy. But, but my mother was there supporting him, and he was supporting her, and, and they really stayed with each other through some... Uh, challenging times. And so they were role models to me about what you can do with the American dream if you work hard. And so I think that a big reason for why I joined the Navy and went to the Naval Academy is is looking at their example and wanting to be someone who, through my own hard work, could you know do something great. And now that you're a parent, you've got four kids. Do you think about that when you're parenting them and talking to them that like you're having this profound impression on them, not even realizing it? Yeah. I mean, you think about when you're a parent, you think about the effects of your parenting every single day. Yeah. How does that affect you in your mentorship of other people and your communication with other people? Like, have you found more patience now that you are a parent? Before I had children, I, I, I had a little bit of an overconfidence in, in things like my patience and my leadership. What, ha- what having children does is it humbles you in all of those areas. You realize that you're more selfish than you thought you were, or you realize you have less patience than you thought you had. So it's in the same way of going to the gym and thinking, I'm pretty strong. I look pretty good. And then you pick up that weight that you think should be easy for you, but it's not. And being in the military was similar. I think that there are ways that I looked around and I said, would say the thing that they're asking me to do shouldn't be as hard as it feels right now. Mm. But 
it's through those challenges that we grow, that the muscle. So I would say that I probably am a lot more patient than I was before and hopefully a better leader and and through being a parent and, and growing as a parent. But at the same time, oftentimes I feel weaker than I was before because in the Socratic sense, like as you grow in knowledge, the more you realize how little and as you grow in virtue, hopefully things like patience, the more you realize how much more you still need. I talk a lot about fear in in the sense of when we talk about mentorship, when we talk about personal development, we talk about growth. Fear plays a big role in that. Doing new things is scary. As we continue to learn new things, we have a tendency to grow through pain. If the circumstance is difficult to deal with or if it's challenging in some way, we'll grow through it. But that also creates a lot of fear. In the moment, it feels overwhelming or it feels like it may not happen. How have you dealt with that fear? What are some of the tools that you've learned, either from the Navy or that you've picked up in your experience, especially for entrepreneurs starting a new venture with no idea whether or not it's going to work or just people in general? Yeah, coping with fear is is a great skill. I think it's a in some ways it's a learned skill. You know, obviously some people have a little less fear and maybe for chemical reasons. I love that documentary Free Solo that came out last year. And so there's arguments about the physical adaptation to fear that come from practice or from chemistry and I would say just when it comes to like coaching a kid through their fear or coaching a a friend through their fears, my general advice, it comes back to my own experience, which is, okay, slow down, take a deep breath. There might be some things that you can alter in the situation that are in your control. Get a little more sleep or eat right, work out to help kind of decrease that fear. And sometimes it comes down to simply coping, like like, uh, this too shall pass. We're going to get through this. I think one of the really interesting fear coaches is Bear Grylls. When you watch a show and you see him have a celebrity try to go over a chasm or something, and he's like, okay, we're going to take it one step at a time. We're going to do it together. And I reflect on him a little bit, actually, when I try to coach my kids with fear. How hard do you need to push somebody so they can learn how to work hard and push through fear? How much do you need to slow the process down? and give grace and that's true with ourselves too how hard should i push myself through fear or how much do i need to like what this is we're going to take a training time out here and uh, re-attack it tomorrow morning but coping with fear is practice and it's discipline discipline equals freedom is what jocko likes to say and in my experience looking back there are some things now that i'm much more afraid of than i was before because i was naive Mm-hmm. And there are some things I'm much less afraid of because I've just been through that roller coaster a few times. Does the cybersecurity and intelligence stuff kind of freak you out and cause any fear for you? No. No. I mean, well, obviously there are dangers that are imminent threats that we should be preparing for, but it doesn't cause fear. It only creates urgency for action, wise action. What are some of the things that folks listening should kind of just in their daily life be practicing to be a little bit more aware of some of the cybersecurity threats in everyday life. Not the, the military and the government stuff. We You're coaching plenty of companies that are able to provide that solution, hopefully. What are some of the things that us everyday people can be doing? I'm not a cybersecurity guy, but it comes basically down to just your privacy hygiene, just basically changing your passwords. If you get that alert, you need to update your software, update it, and then be aware of the phishing and and social engineering risks. If you get that email from uh, somebody that says there has a bunch of money and they need you to write a deposit, don't do it. 
fortunately, kids are picking up on that stuff earlier and earlier, and they're getting good training at, at, at the younger levels. But I'm concerned mostly for use of platforms like TikTok and the vulnerability for social engineering through a foreign-owned social media platforms. Do you think you would have been able to achieve the things that you were doing in your life now had you not had the experience of being in the military and learning some of those skill sets and leadership and that discipline? Uh, I think that leadership and discipline can be learned outside the military through a lot of other things, through sports, through different kinds of leadership training, curricula. But everyone's path is completely unique. And my path coming through the military, I definitely learned some things I couldn't have learned other places, specific things, contextual things having to do with how the, how the military um, works as an organization and also being exposed to the types of leaders around me in the military. I like to tell my kids that you learn a lot from the people that are sitting next to you, not just from a teacher or from even the books. There's a lot of uh, team teaching and you know peer learning that can happen. So the military has been a great place to get access to certain types of peers that have helped me become who I am. All right, Graham. Well, this has been great to, to get to know you and to learn a little bit about Intelligence Community, Inc. and some of the other small business development things that you do. But just one more time, tell us where they can find you on LinkedIn, where they can find you on the web and your Substack. Well, you can find us currently at theintelligencecommunity.com. You can also go on LinkedIn and join any of our 12 LinkedIn groups. Our largest one is called The Intelligence Community. It has about 80,000 members currently. And you can also connect with me on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm constantly sharing information. And then I also, on my own, I run a, an email newsletter through Substack called The Defense and Intelligence Innovation Ecosystem, which is diie.substack.com. And you can join that for free or the premium list for $50 a year and get all kinds of interesting information and invitations to um, virtual happy hours to discuss defense innovation. All right, Graham, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.